This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Miffy Rigby, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, do you have the best job in the world? I don't want to say yes, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly got – I mean, I've often felt that I have the dream job because all I do is uh, talk to wonderful writers and authors day in, day out. However, if I didn't have that dream job, I think I'd like your job. See, I kind of like your job. Yeah, I think maybe it would we be should wonderful. do a swap. Should we? <laughs> it's a thought. Now, for those of you that don't know Miffy Rigby, she is one of Australia's leading food critics. And after completing a Bachelor of Communications in Theatre Management, I mean, I know. I know. Right. What? Yeah. <laughs> Miffy moved into the world of food, acting as the food and drink editor for Time Out Sydney from 2007. Can I just tell you, I lived in London for a time back in 1989, and I bought that magazine religiously every week. Because I think that's where it started. Yeah, it started in London, I think, in 67. And it was, you know, I always, to me, it's the dream magazine in that it was really tiny, really indie. I don't think at first anyone even read it. They published it in some tiny room in Soho and just like thick with cigarette smoke. And I think at one point all the writers went on strike and one person had to get out the entire magazine. (laughs) Which, and they did. Well, for which, from what I understand, was two pages and it was like a folded <laughs> brochure, so it's like not that hard. Yeah. But like there were like those kind of anarchy stories of like early media to me are I, – I, I kind of wish we still had a bit of that hot blood. I think it's fantastic. And then years later, years later, I was in Beirut, Lebanon, and there's the timeout guide to Beirut. I mean, they're just everywhere. They are. They are everywhere. They're fantastic for visitors, I think. Um, and it's a really good place for a young writer to cut their teeth as well, I yeah. believe. Yeah, it's reputable. Anyway, it's not a plug for timeout, but timeout, you can thank Sorry, us Sorry, timeout. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was anyway, good. It was really <laughs> Miffy then became Chief Food and Drink Critic at Time Out Australia for two years. I always said that. And then she joined Fairfax. Um, now, that's got to be the job, really, um, to uh, look after the Good Food Guy. And you were also appointed Creative Director for the Sydney Morning Herald's Good Food Month. Wow. Anyway, Miffy is here today to talk to us about her career, how she went from theatre to food critic, um, and to talk to us about the new Good Food Guide, which I think is fantastic, back to form. Um, and uh, let's get started. I mean, how, how does that happen? How do you go from theatre management to, well, I guess we all love food, don't we? I guess it was dumb luck, actually. Tell me how that happened. Well, I was a very early school leaver. Yeah. 
I was, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Byron Bay. Oh, wow. I was nice. A, but not very academic. Right. And I'd just rather be at the beach, to be honest. Wow. I mean, well, that makes sense in right? Byron. Yeah. Well, and the fact that the, the school was built on the beach, I think, was a really dumb move. Yeah, it's a distraction. The part of, like, Byron Bay High. Like, yeah. what were you thinking? Mm. Because you just climb in under the fence and go straight to the beach. And mm. why wouldn't you do that? I don't know. Um, uh, This week's Good Weekend magazine um, – here we are today. We're just plugging all these media <laughs> outlets. But anyway, that aren't mine. <laughs> that aren't yours. Uh, good story, good sto- short story collection mm. that the wonderful um, um, Katrina Strickland has put together. Tim Winton. Now this is coming back to Byron. Tim Winton has written a beautiful story about water and swimming. It is gorgeous. If you haven't read it um, and you didn't get the paper on the weekend, I'm sure it's available online beautiful relationship with water is just magic and he has a very very particularly special relationship with water i think tim and he writes about it beautifully he does he's probably one of my favorite water related writers truly he's a great writer anyway getting back to byron sorry tim winton we're not talking about you today (laughs) no no we do love him though okay byron yes uh so i left school when i was 16 and i decided i want to be an actor ah and my my dad is the most amazing guy and he is always big on letting people make their own mistakes. And so he said, if that's what you want to do, you go and give it a shot. Mm. And it didn't really work out for me. I mean, like how many people does it ever really work out for? Well, exactly. And I wasn't all that good. Yeah. Uh, but I started cooking, just short order cooking. And had you grown up with food? Like was there a love of food in your family? Oh. Not really. I mean, my mum's a vego, so I was a vego. Uh, Dad sort of uh, toyed with vegetarianism from time to time. I don't think food was ever really a priority in our household. I mean, we all like to eat, but we certainly, you know, we certainly didn't love to cook. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Did you say you were a vego? I was. I grew up vegetarian. But um, you're not now. No. When I was – I've always I've always had a love affair with meat. Yeah. And uh, when I would go and see my grandmother for school holidays, she would slip me chops under the table and sausages and bacon. Do you know, I, I, I think ethically I get it. I really do get it, but I can't do it. I feel the same. I mean – in my job, I, I do eat quite a lot of meat, and so when I'm not working, when I'm having downtime, I do I do tend to stick to a sort of a semi-vego diet where I can just because I, I need the break. Yeah. Okay. So um, so tell me how you got to so you started then moved on to be a short order chef. I did. So I went on in to Byron. No, I was in. I'd moved to Sydney at that point. Right. I packed up a little vintage leather suitcase with like. A couple of bits and pieces, very badly thought out, and hopped on the XPT and moved to Sydney. Did you know that, sure, that, okay, so food wasn't a priority and you didn't know you were heading in that direction, but was writing a priority? Did you know you were a good writer? No, I didn't. I knew that I had something somewhere. It felt like there was a talent for something, but I didn't know what the something was. Yeah. You know when you just got like a sort of a creative drive but you don't really know where to put it? Yeah, that never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I always felt like there was something there that needed to be expressed but what that something was I suppose didn't really present itself until third year uni Yeah, when I had 
I started script writing uh, because I did a theatre media degree. And mm-hmm. um, and then I found through script writing I suddenly felt natural. I suddenly felt like I was breathing and it felt really good. Yeah, wow. That's interesting, mm. isn't it? Okay. And so then you became a chef. Talk to me about that and how hard that is because I have working, worked in kitchens. Oh, it's hard it is so hard grimy it stinks it's 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 really hot it's you know what people never think about when they're making like a lovely dinner party for 10 of their friends the repetition no one ever talks about the repetition because it is no matter what level you're working at from the sort of stuff i was doing which was like short order cafe stuff to three hat fine dining food you still have to make the same things day in, day out for, for 150 seats plus. Do you know, and I can even pair that back a little bit to my world, I don't, I don't have a family so I don't cook every night, right, and I think that's repetition. So often people say to me when they come for dinner, oh, you're such a good cook. Well, I am because I only cook once or twice a week. If that. Mm. So I have time to perform and put together one meal. I mean, I'm not doing seven meals a week or eight meals a week. I'm, that's kind of the same scale, isn't it? Well, exactly. And then times that by another hundred yeah. a day, no. making the same things over and over and over again. And it becomes less about cooking and more about robotics, I think, to a certain point, no matter how good you are. Yeah. It's just hard work, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. It's so physical as well. It's extremely physical. I remember because I I cooked all the way through uni and I went to Charles Sturt University in Bathurst and I worked at a really fun cafe there um, and I would split my my university roster and my work roster and I sort of – made it work I don't think I don't think I ever really took days off I mean I've I've always been a very very hard worker and I've always really enjoyed using up all of my free time but I remember those points where it would be a Saturday night and I would have just finished a double and maybe all my friends wanted to go to the pub and I'd get home and I wouldn't be able to lift my arms to get my like dirty grimy t-shirt off my body yeah because you've just been pushing for six days of the week and you yeah. get to that last bit on a Saturday night and it's just your body just won't cooperate anymore. Yeah. And I can imagine your feet wouldn't move. No. And that was in my like early to mid-20s. So oh. I don't know what it's like. I mean, I'm 38 now. I don't know what it would be like to, to do that kind of physical labour now or mm. people who still do it in their 50s. It's just mm. it's f- crazy to me Mm, I often see that and I wonder how hard how I mean it must take its toll on your body as you get older um so then you um how did you come into writing because that's another skill entirely like cooking is one skill and writing is another and how do you bring those together so when I was at uni I actually met my ex partner now but he was like my the the big relationship and he he was also a writer Uh, and he showed me how to do it (laughs) basically (laughs) he just well I think that he saw that I had the raw talent and it was a matter of showing me how to shape sentences and I think it took me about a year and then I was being employed for it to write about food or yeah, write about anything? write about food. 
Yeah. I think I just must have – it just must have been one of those things that I just was naturally good at and I just I just needed the door to be opened. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about the Good Food Guide. Now, it has been – I I mean, I've been buying it forever, but I stopped buying it um, a few years back because I felt that it lost its way. Mm. However, this edition has most certainly found its way back and oh, it is such a you. great issue. Yeah, yeah, I feel really, really good about it and I think that's uh, partly to do with the fact that it's our second year as a, a national edition now. Um, it was a little bit of a risk trying it out last year and I think that it paid off this year. Yeah. And the other part is that we, we started working with Simon and & Schuster and the wonderful Julie Gibbs and the, her fantastic production team who I've just, I really adored working with and who I'll be working with again next year and Dan Rufino who did an amazing job, uh, with the book as well. And so we just, I guess we had a lot more firepower behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really come alive, I think. Mm. I want to talk about the food scene um, and what you have watched over your young career. Um, and, and particularly for me, I mean, I've read this book from front to, you know, from the title page right through to the index. And I, it's not even once, maybe two or three times. That's how much I love it. Uh, and I love to read about food. But what has been interesting for me, I, I used to only buy the New South Wales guide because I lived in New South Wales. However, now I've got a national perspective. And what's been interesting for me is to see the growth of regional or rural restaurants. That's been really nice. It's been really nice to report on as well, yeah. I have to say. Uh, it's... I think they've been what's been really, really exciting is seeing some of our better chefs move into those rural areas and flourish and for for the communities to actually be supporting them. That's that has been the biggest win. It's not just that they're making great food. It's the fact that the community recognizes it and actually supports it. Yeah. So you being in Bathurst and then coming to Sydney and you know, you probably get back to Byron Bay, what do you think the differences are between urban food and uh, regional food, for instance. Talk to me about how how cuisine has changed in this country. I think you know when it comes to uh, regional regional cuisine, and I think that's definitely changing now. I mean, the, the it's no longer pub food. I mean, it's, I, and it's I, no I don't mind pub, pub food, and it's no longer just vegetable stacks and pumpkin gnocchi, right? Yeah, like it it is changing. I mean, there's still a lot of that out there. Don't get me wrong, but I think it comes down to quite. A, a number of things. I think there's social media, which means that there are more touch points and references for chefs to be looking at without necessarily having to leave their, so true, their area. Yeah. And that's really, really handy. You know, it's not just about yeah. food media and cookbooks anymore. It's yeah. about being able to watch videos on YouTube. It's about Instagram stories. It's about Twitter and Facebook and mostly Instagram, though. It comes back to Instagram for everything, right? Like it's basically killed fashion magazines. Yeah. And um, I think that, that, that that's definitely one of the things. I think um, – Staffing is always an issue when it comes to regional restaurants because it's just really, getting the right people. Just really hard to get the right people, mm. Mm. and you've got the sheer volume in big cities to support yeah. lots and lots of people. 
like mm. restaurants come and go, but they are a constant. Whereas in those regional areas, getting one really, really good one is kind of a much bigger story. Mm. And I think sometimes there's maybe a little bit more value in those regional restaurants in that they they create a narrative within the community and they they can actually create they can create tourism as well. Mm. I mean, when you've got a destination restaurant like Fleet, for instance, in Brunswick Heads, which up until recently really was like a couple of fish and chip places, mm. bad like a not particularly great tie, mm. some really good coffee. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Kind of a cool pub in a caravan park. Mm. And then Fleet turned up and it it was it was the first of the restaurants to really start changing the Northern Rivers, I believe, of the now, as opposed to say Steve Snow's Northern Rivers of the mid to late nineties. It's interesting too, the fashion of food. Mm. Um, like when I was growing up, the restaurant in Sydney to go to was called the Restaurant by Steve Manfredi, you know. Um, and, and I know he's still around and I know he's still making great food, but it's not the trend. It's interesting how trends change, isn't mm. it? Is it the trends of what we eat or is it how we eat and how we go out? What do you <sighs> think it is? I battle with this every day. Yeah. I think about this constantly and I'm not even sure I can give you the clearest answer, but I'll try. I think it's a few things. I think uh, a lot of it is social. Yeah. And uh, for instance, I would probably make an argument that the New South Wales lockout laws have definitely uh, affected the way we go out and we're probably a little bit more likely to go to a restaurant and settle in for an evening with some with like a bunch of really fantastic drinks then go to like a few different bars and then hit a restaurant because the likelihood of being able to not get into those bars mm. is much higher everyone's just on edge all the time the problem with that and I don't want to get hugely negative about this because I rant about it a lot, mm. but there is obviously a business model behind it, the two-hour window. I mean, it drives I know. me crazy. I know. Two things that drive me crazy in, in the restaurant business or in the eating out business is the two-hour window and the no bookings. 
Yeah. No bookings doesn't really bother me. In fact, That's because you're young. Well, I think it's because I just – I like to eat really early actually, <laughs> so it's not really got to do with me being young. I like a 6 p.m. dinner. Do you so really? if anything, I'm a blue plate special kind of gal. Yeah. Um, and I, the reason I like to eat really early is because I eat out constantly and I need to go to the gym first thing in the morning. So yeah. for me, a nice 6 p.m. reservation or like a 6 p.m. seat is perfect because I'm out by 8.30. Yeah. That's the ideal. But um, you just have to be prepared to either eat really early or eat kind of late. I mean, yeah. it's not that different from trying to get a reservation at a two or three hat restaurant at 7.30 p.m., Late week. I mean, they're, they're as rare as hen's teeth. Yeah, they are. Um, I think that if you're happy to eat early and then go to a nice bar afterward, or the opposite, go to a bar and then go and eat in a restaurant. Yeah. I don't um, think there's like, I, I would make the argument that the no bookings thing is not that different. Okay. All right. I buy that. All right. So tell me about, so do you think we're eating now for entertainment? Yes, I do. I don't know that we eat to be nourished so much anymore in restaurants. Yeah. I think if we were eating to be nourished and people sure do, do love to hashtag wellness, yeah. but uh, that's something you're more likely to maybe do lunchtime or do yourself to, when you do your own meal prep or yeah. whatever that is. When it comes to eating in restaurants, it's it's almost voyeurism, right? Like when you can look at other people's meals on Instagram and something I would note on that, which I think is kind of weird but interesting is I can post a photo that will be beautifully composed with great lighting at a restaurant that is probably either like not popular or not very well known and I won't get a lot of likes, but I can post some blurry, ugly thing from a restaurant that has a lot of heat on it and it will go crazy on oh, Instagram. Well, it's it's not about it's almost not about the photos sometimes. It's about the location. It's about the location. Oh, wow, that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Um, okay, so tell me your involvement in this. So you're out there because reviews can make or break a restaurant and mm-hmm. we've seen that happen and when we've seen people lose their job over that. Um, tell me how that works and how you approach. What's your first experience? Like when you're going in there, what are you thinking? I go in there with a pretty blank mind, to be honest. Who sends you there? I send myself there. So my job as the editor of the Good Food Guide is Mm -hmm. to compile a 600-plus list that we then whittle down um, to to be like a 500-plus list within the book nationally. Yeah. Uh, I have a Victorian editor, Rosalind Grundy, who I work with – doing commissioning and then also making sure that list is up to date. Yep. And then the rest I rely on my stringers around the country. Yeah. And I've just actually finished commissioning today for the next book for 2020, which is pretty exciting. That's super exciting. It's really exciting. So when I I send out a commission form, they get mountains of paperwork. I mean, it is crazy. Um, so in terms of criteria? In terms of criteria, in terms of how to review. I mean, it's 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 as foolproof as I can possibly make it without, like, 
following them into a restaurant and telling them what to do while they sit there. Yep. How many of these would you do? I usually do about 60 or 70 myself over wow. the course of the So year. tell me your experience. Tell, so from my the experience is... How do you approach it? Well, um, I will go into the restaurant. I've booked under a, a, an assumed name. Right. Um, I sit down. Because you don't want special treatment. I don't want special treatment. I want to have as much of a regular experience as I can possibly manage, which is not always realistic because my face is kind of everywhere but um, and you're highly recognizable (laughs) but i i do my best to to keep a low profile where i can and you know weirdly i do get away with it quite a bit yeah not so much in sydney but in the other states i do yeah and i uh i sit down i order my meal and you you do the full three courses i do the full three courses and I shoot each of the courses surreptitiously on my telephone. Yeah. I take notes on my phone so I just look like the world's worst dinner date basically. Yeah. Sitting there texting. Yeah. Uh, People do it. I know. But, you know, when I'm in restaurants just eating for joy and I look and I see other people on their phones, I'm like, what are you doing? Do you know how much – you're about to like drop on this meal. Why don't you look at the person you're, you're eating yeah. with and talk to them? Yeah. Can your life be that dry? Mm-hmm. Have you really run out of that much conversation that you can't even say how is your day, what's going on? Look at that weird mushroom I've got on my plate. There's always something to say. Yeah. Oh, look at that girl. Look at that girl look, who's looking really disapprovingly, <laughs> staring at us. What's what is her problem? But I, I do can, get really upset about it. It yeah. actually makes me really, really like furious. Yeah, yeah, it does me too. Okay, so you're looking for flavor. What are you looking for oh, when yeah. you're eating? You're so looking for service. What I'm looking for in terms of a ho- like a holistic restaurant experience yes. is I'm looking for fantastic service that is polished yet approachable yeah i'm looking for an interesting wine list uh that again is either led by a sommelier who can talk me through it without making me feel like a fool yeah or somebody who's like i I trust enough to just pick some things for me i'm looking for food that is wholly delicious and original or very, very, or, or at least pays credits to like really, really classic cooking. It depends what their pitch is. I mean, basically, what we look for is to see whether they are hitting their pitch. So, are they are they fulfilling the criteria that they've set for themselves? Yeah, their promise. Hey, I want to tell you a funny sommelier story. I yes. um I was out once with a client, and he decided to order Grange. And, you know, I don't even like red wine. But anyway, um, and I then said to the sommelier, you know, talk to me about Grange. I mean, really, I know that it's expensive, but I don't know very much about it. And this was at a high-end Sydney restaurant. <laughs> and he said, it's very, very special. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very that much. The experience That's I got. Really yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Great. That's a one out of five. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So we actually do uh, have a score breakdown as well that each reviewer has to uh, fill out when they fill out their review. And uh, it's like a 10 for food and a five for service. And, and then it goes down the list. And 
uh, and then you get like a two for X factor. So is there something really cool or wonderful or out of this world about that that restaurant that you might not find anywhere else? So for me, I'm drawn to the 14, 15 out of 20s because I'm, Well, they're you know, fun. They are. They're fun. They're mid-range. I can afford them and usually the flavour's good. However, how do you compare that like with like the 18, 19s, the three chef? I mean, you're not comparing, are you? Everything is standalone. I mean, Everything's I often comparable. think that that would be difficult. It is difficult. It's really hard. It's usually pretty obvious, though, in terms of when, like, you compare a one hat to a three hat. Yeah. They are very different, pitch, differently pitched restaurants. And a one hat doesn't want to be a three hat. No. Sometimes a three hat doesn't want to be a three hat. They can't help it. They're too good. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, like, three-hat restaurants are really difficult to run and they're very, very expensive and the pressure on you to, to uh, maintain is, God, I can't even imagine. I mean, How many three-hat restaurants were there? We've got eight across the country at the moment. Wow. It's and is that Out comparable? of a possible 500 and something, yeah, you know? Like yeah. It's a, it's, I mean, I veer right away from them, but would that be comparable to Michelin stars? How does that work? Um. In terms of pitch, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose yeah. that, that that would be about comparable. Yeah. Yeah, because we don't – I mean, it's not a measure here so much, no. is it? I mean, I don't get Michelin in a lot of places, to be honest, yeah. outside of France and, and New York and – Europe. Yeah. Europe. I mean, where you can see that it makes sense. Tokyo obviously makes sense. But yeah. some of the places I've been where they, they're awarding Michelin stars, I just – I don't get it. No. But anyway. Yeah. Um, it's fabulous how this is. I mean, for that, for people who've probably never even bought the good food guide, there is still the measure of one hat, two hats. I mean, it has really become part of the vernacular, hasn't it? I believe so. And I think that it's really comforting to know because as a diner, you, this is a big investment. This mm. is a $200 plus investment when you go out. And we're there to make sure that you're investing your money well. Yeah. We're like the option traders of flavour. Yeah. And so you don't necessarily, if you don't like it, it just doesn't make the cut. Is that no, right? No, that's not true. Oh, uh, okay. just, just because something's not to my taste doesn't mean it's not a good restaurant. Okay. Talk to me about that, the borderline well, ones. The, I guess the, 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 really big, the really big challenge as a, as a critic is to separate your personal feelings mm. from that of the what the restaurant is setting out to do. It's the same with but, books. Exactly. It's all we're looking at is to see if that restaurant is fulfilling its brief. If it is, brilliant. I mean, just because I may not want to eat that way, it doesn't mean that a lot of diners don't want to. Mm. So I, I, I mean, that's – and it's the same with any of our reviewers. You've got to be so careful. It's the same with any, like, any type of criticism. Mm. You've just always got to make sure that you're, you're keeping yourself out of the equation but using your depth of experience to relate what's going on. Okay. For the and reader. I know this has happened where restaurants have lost their hats. Mm. Talk to me about how that – works within I mean because that's a big decision oh, for you highly guys highly stressful highly I um, imagine. we are very very rigorous when it comes to dropping a restaurant its hat we will visit the restaurant again right I will if it's if it's somewhere especially if it's somewhere that's kept that hat for a very long time mm. we, we don't do that 
flippantly. We'll definitely send one of our senior review panel, which they are all made up of uh, full-time good food staff, mm-hmm. to go and look again and to be able to make that judgment. And uh, we also do uh, two panel meetings throughout the year, and I might even add a third and a fourth this year just to break it up a little bit, where we sit down and we go through the scores one by one and we discuss them and it takes forever. It Mm. takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours Mm. and hours going through and prosecuting every score, going through the notes from the reviewers, talking through our personal experiences in those restaurants is this right? Is this not right? It's it's a huge undertaking and it's an expensive undertaking. Oh, look, I, I think you do such a fabulous job. It is really a very highly well-regarded guide, highly well-regarded brand, and I can tell by reading the reviews that it is well-considered, that this there's nothing flippant about this book um, and there's nothing flippant in your approach to food criticism. Um, I can't congratulate you enough for giving it life again. Um, I love it. I think our readers will love it. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.